Fusion Patrol is a listener-supported podcast. Find out how you can help support us at patreon.com slash fusion patrol. This is the Fusion Patrol podcast. Each week, we look at a different science fiction TV episode or movie and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to a special, never-before-done Halloween edition of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm Simon. And tonight we are going to be looking at the 1992 program, Ghost Watch. Ghost Watch was a live broadcast on Halloween 1992, airing at 9.25 p.m. on BBC One, featuring veteran television presenters Michael Parkinson, Sarah Green, and Mike Smith. Oh, and also Craig Charles, who was along for the ride. This documentary program is framed around live haunted house sitting by presenter Sarah Green. The house, located on Fox Hill Road, has been the scene of a months-long investigation by psychic investigators. For the live broadcast, the BBC have equipped the house with remote cameras, motion sensors, temperature detectors, and has a handheld broadcast camera that can also function as a thermographic camera. The inhabitants of the house, divorcee Pamela Early and her two children, Suzanne and Kim, have been experiencing many strange things. Thumping in the night, dishes broken, mysterious presences in the room, and and most disturbingly, strange scratches that appear on Suzanne. Sarah, her cameraman and sound man, will spend the night in the house, hoping to capture ghostly phenomena on video. In the studio, Michael Parkinson hosts the program, along with Mike Smith, who is in the telephone call-in center, taking calls from the British public, on their ghostly experiences. Joining Parkinson on commentary is Dr. Lynn Pascoe, psychic researcher who has been working on the case and also written a book on the subject, Angels of the Odd. Remote from New York is Alan Demescu from PSYCOP, an organization that investigates claims of the paranormal from a skeptical perspective. Little happens for the first scheduled portion of the program, with mostly background interviews with neighbors and phone-in callers taking up the time. However, an unusual pattern develops. Many of the callers identified a mysterious figure in some of the footage. Footage that even Dr. Pascoe doesn't see anything in, and dismisses as the human mind seeking patterns. Strange things begin happening, and when strong thumping begins, the ever-watching eye of the camera catches the culprit. Suzanne has slipped off and is making the noises because that's what you wanted to hear, she says. The fraud exposed on national television, it looks as if there's little more to say, except that both Mrs. Early and Dr. Pascoe are adamant that this cannot be all that there is. The things that they've seen cannot be explained by Suzanne faking things all along. All across Britain, Callers are contacting the program with bizarre stories of things that are happening right now. Their clocks, like those in the house, have all stopped at 9.30. Things are breaking. Cats screaming. Blood is appearing on walls. It seems mass hysteria is settling in. As things continue to get worse in the house, 
with unseen cats screaming, more thumps and things breaking, and Suzanne falling into some sort of a stupor, her face and hand covered by scratches. The program stays on the air, interrupting the next scheduled program. Electronics start to go haywire in the house, leading to a breakdown in communications with the studio shortly after they open up the boarded-up glory hole. <laughs> and it appears that the sound man is injured. But soon the feed, if not the sound, returns, and things look back to normal in the house. A caller calls in. He was a social worker in the 60s, and he knows the tragic, untold story of a secret renter who lived in the house. A disturbed child molester that should have never been let loose. He had delusions of a woman haunting him, and in the end, he hung himself with the, when the owners were away on holiday. Twelve days later, they returned to find his body eaten by the household cats who were trapped inside with him. His injuries, much like those described by the callers that saw the mysterious figure in the videotape. At this point, they realize that the video they're watching from the house is a recording from earlier in the evening, and when they recover the feed, the ambulances and police are on the scene, with the sound man being taken away. The family are mostly out of the house, but not Suzanne, Sarah, nor the cameraman. Things really start to fall apart as electronics in the studio begin to fail. Dr. Pasco realizes that the entire audience of the program, 11 million people, are acting as a sort of countrywide massive seance, and the apparition is no longer confined to the house. In the house, using the thermographic camera, they cannot find Suzanne, but they hear her screaming from the glory hole, and as, and as Sarah tries to get in, the door opens. She crawls in, and the door slams behind her. The transmission is lost as the studio is a disaster, being evacuated and in complete darkness. A befuddled Michael Parkinson wanders in the darkness and then, seemingly possessed, begins reciting a nursery rhyme as the program goes to black. The end. Um, I'm just going to check here. Does Glory Hole mean something different in Britain than it does in the United States? <laughs> no. <laughs> no? Okay. Well, not anymore. I don't know. Not anymore. Me. It may not have stood out quite as much in 1992. <laughs> I've never heard the term used in any other capacity other than it's um, uh, sorted. <laughs> oh, no, it, has um, to, it definitely has dual meaning. Definitely has dual meaning. Huh. I've heard of these things called like a priest hole or no, no, no. that. But you never hear of Harry Potter being trapped in the glory hole. That's that's. Well, this isn't old enough. Uh, I mean, that was a film, a priest hole, obviously, uh, not made by the official company. Harry Harry Potter in the glory hole, but um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so, <laughs> so t tell me a little bit about um, uh, uh, the why we're doing this on Halloween and why this podcast uh, went out at exactly 925 UK time. Um, uh, at least according if, if the automatics went right. Um, uh, <laughs> what, uh, what, what, what is the significance of, of that now? Well, it's, it's an anniversary. The, the original show went out at 925 on the 31st of October in 1992. So, mm -hmm. Uh, 28, 28 years later, right at this moment, um, well, that's, that's assuming someone's actually listening to the podcast the instant it's released. But um, as it is released, I will be watching Ghost Watch once again 
as I now do as an annual event as part of the national seance on Twitter. So following the, ha- the hashtag Ghostwatch or National Seance 20, um, you will be able to watch along with everyone else recreating the the seance that uh, Parky and, and Lynn Pascoe and the rest created in that fateful studio 28 years ago. Have you guys ever managed to conjure up any spirits or ghosts uh, whatnot during the uh, national seance? Well, I have to admit, I came to it a bit late. I didn't, I didn't realise it was taking place until I think the third or fourth national seance. It's been going on for a decade, um, so I mm-hmm. may, have, I may have missed some some of the earlier ones. But there's 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 definitely a lot of uh, a lot of entertainment to be had, and. Um, <laughs> Every time someone mentions Glory Hole, there is definitely a flurry of tweets. Okay, good. <laughs> good. I'm, I'm glad to hear that because that the first time through, I just had to stop the tape. <laughs> just like, okay, <laughs> we're going to take a break here. <laughs> it's like, all right. Um, and so I will make sure I put the hashtag in the uh, tweets that go out on this too. So uh, catch it uh, catch it right on, on time. Um. I think this is a brilliant piece of television. I have never seen this before. I have only vaguely heard of it from your mentionings of it. Um, uh, but I mean, from a technical standpoint, with the exception of a few a few spots in the production, it, it's 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 like letter perfect. If you were trying to make something to fool people, up up to a point, obviously it reaches a point where it's absurd, but. Uh, up up to a point, it's it's a brilliant piece of television. I I absolutely adore it. <laughs> so I'm glad you introduced me to this. But I'm I'm really glad you like it. I have to say, I had no idea how you would respond to it because it's. I I mean I agree I agree about it being letter perfect, but it's letter perfect using the language of reality television in 1992. So the first time I saw this, and the reason that it is. I mean, it holds. I, I, I just think this is. I mean, I've seen it over a dozen times. I think it is one of the. It's one of my favourite pieces of television. But I, I came across it as it was being broadcast, and probably like a lot of people, I didn't see it at the beginning. I came in uh-huh. part way through. Um, at the beginning, you get a continuity announcement that, thanks to the uh, interventions of the powers that be at the BBC makes it clear that you're about to watch a, a, a drama programme. But as you come in partway through, obviously what yep. you're watching is, is, uh, is a studio show about, about uh, the paranormal. I think I made a note uh, that said, if you came into this at any point after two minutes, 45 seconds into the programme... You would you would not be anyway. I, I forgot what it was that happened at two forty or two forty four that that made me go oh, oh okay. But but if you came in after that, then there I'm is not sure because no. I, th- I I I kind of think you you got you literally got the titles which Jonathan Powell, who listeners mm. will know as one of Doctor Who's greatest enemies, insisted mm. two days before that they add in opening titles to it. Mm-hmm. Right, the 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 written by is the tip off. I mean, the the part where it says it's got Michael Parkinson, you know, starring Michael Parkinson, yes. Sarah Green, Michael, that, that that won't give you away. But the written by is like, well, oh, that right, yeah. I, I that, can't remember what I can't remember what the 
sequence of the titles is. But yeah, that one makes you go, all right. Well, they still have writers though for live shows. You're not you're not necessarily. Well, they don't normally credit them because they don't want you to think yeah. they're at writers. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that's fair. I, I think that's fair. And of course, there's no way I could go into this not knowing that it was a, I don't want to say hoax, because that's not what it is. But uh, it's no, not but even I... really a mockumentary, it, because it's not making fun of it. It's it's using it as a it... as a tool for a drama. And it, darn, it, it's good at that. It's really well, good I think at I, that. I want to come back to that, because I, I think it is a mockumentary, actually. But it's it's interesting that using using it as a tool to tell a a ghost story that it that it seems to work as well as it does because i have this experience which is very much it's it's welded to how i first encountered this at the age of 15 and so i can't really separate that and so anyone who knows anything anything about the show probably um, if they haven't seen the show directly, knows about it because of the fury that followed it, because people thought it was real. Um, mm-hmm. They thought that Sarah Green had been killed. Uh, they thought that you know Michael Parkinson had actually been possessed, and they flooded the BBC with, compl- <laughs> with complaints. And you know, even if thirty thousand calls during the program. The, uh, yes, at one point, 20,000 people were, were, were calling in. The, 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 the telephone number, I mean, this is another interesting thing. Uh, 081 811 8181. Any kid who grew up in the 80s watching Sarah Green on Going Live will recognise the phone number. I mean, it was used on Crime Watch as well. It, it's the phone number that you would have used on shows like this. I mean, it's, it's just, it adds, it's the the kind of perfection in the verisimilitude of this show is remarkable, and so they they used a real phone and they had five people, yeah, <laughs> five people manning the lines in case anyone was taken in, and of course twenty thousand people phoning in at the same time they jammed it. Well, they had uh, an eleven million person audience too, apparently. Yes, uh, although it was I mean, big. I think at the time that wasn't as remarkable as it would seem now. This this was. This was a prime time thing. So, so we, we're going back to a time when BBC One showed every Saturday. Well, they would it would it would run a series uh, films they would call Screen One that they would show at this time of night on a Saturday. They would be a standalone film, and they would be proper proper serious. Well, I mean, not necessarily serious in the content, but that, but they would be substantial pieces of drama that essentially post watershed drama yeah were a, a, a film being shown on on television so it's not necessarily surprising that it got an audience of that order of magnitude even if that was quite a a big audience for a, a screen one drama but i i don't think they had necessarily anticipated quite how many people they would take in and part of part of what i think was intended to make the show effective was presenting it framing it in this way so that it was a proper modern day ghost story mm. but it then got jumped on by the tabloids who then as they do now had an axe to grind with the bbc so they used it as a stick to beat the, the bbc with the bbc senior management instantly 
disowned it and basically <laughs> hung the, the show's producers and stars out to dry. Um, people like Michael Parkinson stood behind it, became a kind of lightning conductor for the, the, the tabloid campaign, um, you know, Sarah Green too, because they were the, the high-profile stars in mm-hmm. this. But, I mean, there's, there is... The, the, the responses are extraordinary. We, uh, a couple of years later, British Medical Journal published accounts of two, two children who had seen Ghost Watch who had post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm-hmm. There is a, a very sad story of um, a young man uh, with learning difficulties, uh, Martin Denham, I think his name was, who became obsessed with the show after it had been broadcast, the central heating in his house made banging noises, and and he and he committed suicide. The, I mean, I think that's that must have been awful for the people involved in the program. The coroner didn't make a connection with the show. Um, right. His parents were furious with the BBC, and you know, vowed never to watch Michael Parkinson again, and and so forth. But it, I, I, well. I'm not I'm not trying to make an excuse for him, but I, I did also watch at your suggestion a program called Bite Back, I think, which is Indeed. people complaining yeah. about the BBC. And they had the producers on there and they had the audience in there giving them giving them a grilling. And, you know, I, I'm kind of in a way with the producers on this one. It's post watershed. Your kids aren't supposed to be watching. And I, I don't know how that works, but I mean Fair warning, if you're if, responsible. Yeah, if you if your parents let you watch it, you shouldn't be getting mad at the BBC. But it's still I, I, I could I could see this Tara, you know, there was one there was one parent on there that said, you know, I saw this, I I looked at what it was about, I vetted it. Okay, well, how do you vet it without watching it first? But okay, I vetted it. And I let my kids watch it. And part of that was because I guess, and now here's here's where, you know, you have the advantage, listeners in the UK have the advantage. Michael Parkinson, I've heard of. You hear of Michael Parkinson because, not necessarily because I see shows with him in it, because those are not the type of shows that get over here, but because there are names of famous, influential, uh, respected people in broadcast journalism or, or broadcasting that their names get bandied about. You know, somebody will, will say, well, I'm, you know, talking about some presenters. Well, he's not Michael Parkinson. You, you just, you know that name. The name comes up in, in context and other things. So that name, I've even seen the face and the voice. That one I know. Sarah Green, Mike uh, Smith, no, don't know him. But I understand they were partially children's presenters. Yes. At that time, and that I can see throwing a confuser at at the parents. So I I could see somebody looking. Oh, it's a Sarah Green and Mike Fincher. Let's well, I'm not going to let them. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to let them off on on that. I mean, Sarah Green was she was my Blue Peter presenter when um, when I was six, I think. Uh, okay. You know, I, I remember when I started watching that show. She, it was it was her, Peter Duncan, Simon Groom, and there is something about. I mean, I was just thinking about not this Peter Purvis, not 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 Peter Purvis. Not I'm not that old. Um, <laughs> like right. Peter Purvis, 
and indeed Janet Ellis, who um, followed from Sarah Green, um, she she of course has the distinction of presenting Blue Peter and appearing in Doctor Who. Just waiting for you to make the connection. <clears throat> and, nope. and you call I, yourself I've... a Colin Baker fan. Attack of I... the Cybermen. Attack of the Cybermen. There are women in Attack of the Cybermen. <laughs> I mean, apart from apart from uh, Perry, she wasn't one of the the Chiron, the the crino, not the crinoids. No, no, I can't pin it. Do do you... I? I can't picture a female character in that entire episode, except for the the aliens. The the importance of having real presenters doing this i don't think can be understated because it's a funny thing but when you watch when you see it in in doctor who where they kind of do where they where they do have newsreels or whatever when you when you watch those little those little bits if you watch an actor acting the part of a tv presenter they're almost invariably terrible at it and they're good (laughs) actors it's like for, for for some reason sitting there reading the news and hitting the the kind of inflection and and I think writers are the same they can't write realistic scripts for news readers so they the, for, for whatever reason they 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 can't quite get the kind of performance because I think you know a, a TV presenter is giving a performance and an actor is giving a performance but somehow an actor can't perform the performance that a TV presenter is doing and sell it in the same way that a TV presenter does. Hmm. So I don't think this I, would have worked. Even... I, I don't disagree with you there. I mean, it, it adds it adds such a layer of verisimilitude to both the performance and to the pre-program hype. But even, you know? even for you, as, some, as someone who doesn't know who Sarah Green or or um, Mike Smith is to see to see people giving a um, a TV presenter and and even do, Craig Charles who who I know you know mostly from a show I don't like which is Red Dwarf um, <laughs> but I also know he was the host of what Robot Wars UK so it's not yes yeah, so not that he but it's it's a thing he does now. Me watching it the best, it's yeah. Like, he's, okay, Drake yeah. Charles is a guy who could be a presenter. I didn't know he was a presenter except for Robot Wars and Red Dwarf. That's the only two things I know him from. And then this, when I saw him, but I'm like, okay, I can believe that he's the kind of glib guy that they would put on there for color on the side. And yeah, no, they 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 were they have that. Sarah in particular has that almost banal delivery to it that that mm. that comes with like a morning TV, you know that that banter that you get on the morning show. What what do they call it in the BBC? The One Show is that the? I don't think that's a morning show, but I'm not an expert. Is it not a show? Okay, on kind well, of magazine stuff. In American show, it would be like the Today Show or something. They just have the hosts, and they have people who are just really natural at glib chatter that is nothing like a real human being but it's nothing like acting either it is it's yeah no i i i totally totally get it they they were doing a great job selling it uh and 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 there i think is one of one of the one of the things that i think uh, is so wonderful about sarah green in this is that 
because she's a trained actor as well, she she's able to give a performance or maybe, you know, maybe she's just, you know, natural, but it, she's able to, she's able to give a performance that makes, makes you believe not just at the beginning that she is a TV presenter because you know she is a TV presenter and that she's doing this for real because she is fundamentally just doing a presentation job but also at the end that she is a TV presenter in a situation that has gone way out of control and that she's reacting to that in a, in as as Sarah Green and I th- I think that is terribly effective and it's doubly so because there because she has about her this persona so so here's here's the thing she she's she's like my blue peter presenter in the it, she's like the primary school teacher you love she's someone who you want to be your your big sister or whatever she's she's kind of beautiful and she is reassuring and you see that in the relationship that she develops with the kids in the house and what's so great about that or possibly so terrifying for the you know bite back audience is that they can then use that and subvert it because here is someone who will make everything all right it's like don't you know don't don't i'll put you to bed i'll hold your hand she is the Mm. ultimate in and this this is going to sound slightly critical but i i think it's clear that i love sarah green so but it, what what you're talking about this kind of glib, um, somewhat banal TV presentation style, and then you and then at the end you get this situation where it's not all right. Where it won't be all right because Sarah Green has has been pipes has got Sucked her Sucked down the glory hole. <laughs> she, she's been, exactly exactly so, and and I think I think that is one of the things that that is really effective in making this properly terrifying. Um, and I'm not going to put this in anywhere near the same context. And I, I will say I am, I am seriously impressed with the BBC at getting there first. Okay. Um, and, and, and maybe, maybe um, there used to be, I mean, we have a ton of this, let's call it crap now, but you go back, to this period of time, if you go over to Asia, Japan, Taiwan, they used to have a lot of these panel shows where they would send a couple of people in to a house with thermal cameras and and then they'd have a group of people talking about it and watching what was happening. And, and, and that, that was an early form of this that then crept over here and over there. And I, I wonder if there's a little inspiration in that. But... In 1998, and I was, in 1998, I was much older than you were in 1992. (laughs) I believe it was Fox Television in the United States ran a program called Alien Abduction Incident at Lake County. And I happened to be watching that with a group of friends. It was on a Friday or a Saturday night. I don't remember when it was, but I had a group of friends over at my house and we watched this program. And it was also a fake. I, I, I shouldn't have to say that, but I'm going to. It was also a made-up program. Uh, you know, apparently what had happened was that these filmmakers had made this sort of found footage story about alien abduction. And 
whatever happened, it was somebody liked it well enough that they remade the same footage, perhaps with changes, I don't know, with professional actors. And then the producers took that program and framed it with experts talking about it as if they had recovered this film. So they had they had people who were paid to take, you know, cut in and out of this footage. So they weren't trying to make it live or anything like that. They were saying, this is what we got and here's what we got. And they were talking to, and I see the air quotes, real experts. They had people like Stanton Friedman, who was a relatively famous UFO researcher, air quotes, um, who who were providing commentary on this program. Now, what they had done with these experts, and I think they had some, I think they had some name skeptics, if I recall, as well. They didn't know what their they were commenting on. They were doing a generic interview where, so they would be, you know, Friedman would be talking about cattle mutilations, and they would insert that after you'd sequenced, seen the sequence where there'd been some funny business with the cows. And it made this seem so much more real. Um, that, and there were absolutely no credits at the beginning. It just went right into this program. And, you know, I had a group of, of friends, uh, some of them who believed this kind of nonsense and, and fair number of us who do not. And you're still watching the program. And it's like, this is, I mean, they didn't say this was fake. So, I mean, oh, this, it can't possibly be real. But there's that little doubt in your mind that there's nothing, that there has to be something there. And, uh, and it wasn't until you're watching the end where in very, very small type, uh, at the at the end, you know, not even in the first prominent place, but somewhere down in the credits where they quickly listed the actors by, you know, actors. And you're like, oh, well, we're off the hook here. But it, it felt like a betrayal of television. It, 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 I, I agree. You're watching this going, boy, they did not, they didn't give you any warning that this was a fake. And by including real people, I said, Stan Friedman for, for, for one, I'm sure of, was part of it, even though he's a crackpot. Uh, it just kind of... Because you wouldn't think that a crackpot would be involved, that a true believer would be involved in a hoax, right? I mean, that's right. the last person that they'd want to be participating in something that's pulling the wool over people's eyes about the reality of, or non-reality of, of UFOs. And so I, I was, I fully was expecting Ghostwatch to be years after incident at Lake County. But it is not true. It's the reverse. So kudos to the British for getting there first. The BBC once again pioneering television. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I mean, I can I mean, understand was there, was the feeling. Before the kind of found footage phenomenon that, that Blair yes. Witch kicked off. Um, yes. I think, I think the producers of Blair Witch actually have... Um, said that the that ghost watch was an influence on on them, which would not be surprising. I read somewhere that 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 was common, but that the that the the producer said, no, no, we hadn't actually, we weren't influenced by it. So I don't know which is true, but definitely both stories are running around out there uh, that they were or they weren't. But um, yeah, it, it's um, it, it's good. I, I I'm gonna catch a couple things here that were 
also tip-offs. And and also during the course of the the program, the during the bite back, one of the production people were talking about um, you know, we gave you we gave you clues during the course of the show. We we had things in there where, you know, Michael Parkinson's was like, if this is bothering you, if this is distressing, you know, if your kids are watching this right now, turn the TV off and put them to bed, you know, and things like that. They were supposed to, I don't know, break the reality. I'm not sure how I see that. No, no, I don't think they were. But I think that, and the, the things that, that broke the, would have did, well, except I didn't have the reality. So it's really hard to say the opening footage when they're showing the kids in the bedroom, right? The kids go to bed at eight, nine o'clock, whatever it was. You've got the video camera in the room. Uh, and then at 3 a.m. in the morning, things start happening and the kids wake up. And of course, the camera, which has been there all night, is still recording them because I think that's the intent. But as soon as things start happening, the camera starts to move. And and the first time that the camera starts to move, you could be they've done it in such a way that it kind of looks like they've digitally zoomed. So that they're trying to take static footage. But that illusion is broken before for the end of it. It's like, okay, so that means there was actually a, a paranormal researcher sitting in there motionless on that camera from eight o'clock at night till three in the morning. Hmm. And yeah. I, I'm not buying that. That that one that one breaks it. And and the other That's one that the, ab- yeah, the other one that absolutely destroyed it for me was when we saw the skeptic, who is apparently one of the few American actors in Britain. And uh, <laughs> so so I saw him and I immediately I immediately recognized him as the news presenter from a BBC show called Broken News. He was the American oh. with Claudia Christensen and also I believe he's the president that got killed by the master in uh, uh Sound of yes. Drums or whichever one it was. Yeah. I mean it it, it immediately go that. And and all, you know and even there I thought maybe Maybe they do have a guy in here from Psychop, which is a real or was a real organization in 1992. They are now CSI instead of Psychop, but the, the the people who publish Skeptical Inquirer magazine, of which uh, I will admit that I am a paid uh, <clears throat> uh, subscriber of that uh, fine institution and the great work that they do. So I was rooting for him until I saw him and I'm like, oh, it's that's not that's a fake. <laughs> but it, I think you'd have to say, in the, ignore, ignoring the fact that Broken News and The Sound of Drums hadn't actually been broadcast in 1992, the the whole of the rest of the cast is populated by, as as uh, Rich Brooks says on the Bite Back programme, actors who have appeared in other popular programmes on the telly that week. So they know that that is going to break the illusion for people who recognize them. Yeah, and I recognized absolutely none of them. Apart from, from that one. Apart from, yeah, that one, yeah, that one guy. So uh, there was no, th- I mean, that illusion would be... It, the other thing that was a little bit... <sighs> Let's see. Uh, the performance of Dr. Pascal, not letter perfect. Um, oh. Also, she's a little too actress looking you know she looks a bit like a casting call instead of an actual parapsychologist so that one was a little uh a little off for Um, me 
I entirely disagree about that. I think she's really good. She's not bad, but it's just not, it just doesn't quite, I mean, I've watched an awful lot of videos with real paranormal researchers and they're, they're, they're not, they're not as composed. They're not as slick as she is. Um, there's always a mad gleam in their eyes um that wasn't there uh <laughs> you know it, it just it just didn't quite it, it that it's not bad but it just didn't quite work for me um and and then when it went nuts in the studio at the end then that was just that was too much that was too much the studio in pitch blackness uh you know no power and somehow one camera still working without the tally light so that parkinson can see that that's the camera that's on uh, at that point, you're just like, yeah, no, this is this. Is, they it, they didn't make it work, but it says you can't. I mean, I I I've heard that criticism about the ending before, and I I loved the ending. I loved it when I first saw it, and I still think it's wonderful. And partly, what makes it so wonderful is the fact that it's 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 so over the top. I mean, I just I just thought it was funny at the time because I mean the whole the whole well it the whole thing is is so is it's such an audacious thing and a lot of it is very very dark but at the same time you know it's just there's something amazingly brilliant about how well they how well they achieve this and you want well, to see uh, how me... far they can go and in fact they go that far and yet they still get people thinking it's real and that's that's the weird part when you if you reach the end of this you should know and i and i think let, let's i'm gonna try a i'm not gonna explain this well but we've all heard the term breaking the fourth wall right where where suddenly the program becomes you and the you and the presenter turns to the camera and talks yeah, to you the, you audience. the audience yeah this one is slamming that fourth wall closed at that moment Suddenly, the program distanced to a third person for me, because at that moment, I was no longer, you could see that it was no longer the BBC cameraman, even though they were blurring the camera to make it look like there was no cameraman there. It's just as if we've been sitting here in the room with them the whole time. And when that final scene comes, they put the lid on the box and go, see, this was a TV program all along. And that's the moment where it's just absolutely and i think that's a perfect way to end it and i think that's a a, a and i say responsible way to end it but i think that's good because you shouldn't have any doubt after that moment it's done it's closed it's off <laughs> <laughs> right i mean that's it all right yeah that was nuts okay but it is, uh, it is. i mean it's a it's, it's michael parkinson being possessed by the ghost of a dead child molester it's just i I, I still I still think, you know, after having watched it so many times, I can't believe they did that. So, I, I, and not not the content. It's like I said, it's not the content. It's the way it's done. And, and at that point, you're just like, I'm, I'm I've I've broken free from it. The illusion is is shattered, and I'm and I'm they've let me go. I, I feel like they're intentionally doing that. But, um. You know, it's time to go back to reality. And uh, I also wonder, because it, it appears during the course of this program that 
they're giving the illusion that it is a one hour program that gets held over to continue on into the next hour. Yeah. Obviously, I doubt very much that the Radio Times published a fake show <sighs> to fool people, right? Because that I would think, be... I think Stephen Falk would have liked it if they had. But the, the, uh, there was... I think they, they were unhappy that the Radio Times included a cast list. So... <laughs> well, there you for, go. For people who watch... For, for people who read the Radio Times, you wouldn't have been taken in by that. On the other no, hand, wish... it is just another piece of the TV language that feels so real. Yeah. Now, we, we cannot let this go without paying due respects to Orson Welles' War of the Worlds, very famous broadcast, and which, like this, was presented in such a way as to be in the language of radio at the time. I don't... I wanted to ask about this. I, I think you've already answered it in a way, but but I'll... I'll get to it. One of the reasons that War of the Worlds was so devastating was because it was broadcast as part of a regular program. I believe the Firesign Theater. I believe that's what it was. Am I confusing that? Anyways, Orson Welles theater program, weekly radio program, and it was complete. It had it had credits. It had you know we're doing H.G. Wells' War of the World. Here's the cast, or you know featuring Orson Welles, or whatever it happened to be. It had all those things, but what it, at the very beginning, but what, what really threw it off was that apparently the more popular radio program of the evening on another channel ran long that night <laughs> and ran just far enough past the opening credits that by the time you switched over for Orson Welles, they were already into the faux program, which, which apparently... Uh, it's been so many years since I listened to it. I mean, started off with them being like at a listening to a band, a radio program where they were playing a live band at a ballroom somewhere, and then they interrupt for the news of the the attacks. And uh, you know, absolutely, if you came in late, sure, you shouldn't believe Martians have landed and are invading the Earth. But at the same time, when the news is telling you that they are, what do you suppose? You know, th we didn't have the shouts of fake news in those days. And <laughs> so I wondered if there was a significance to this program starting at 925 instead of 930. I, mean, I know that that's not as uncommon in Britain as it is in the United States. But is there any overlap where people came in late, like at 930 because something on ITV just went off the air? Or do I didn't see anything of that in, in any of the thing I read on it. But I was curious if that was might have uh, made it worse. I don't think so. Okay. I don't have copies of the TV Times from October 1992 to check. Well, I don't, I don't have the Radio Times either, but I I think it it's a Saturday night schedule in the week. A lot of TV programmes are starting on the hour or half past. You've also got to bear in mind that with the BBC, they can't just shove adverts in to fill the gaps in order to make things start at convenient times. So it would be incredibly common for a, a program to start at five minutes past the hour, 15, 20, whatever. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I know that happens with Doctor Who a lot. 
comes on at a weird yes, time. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's unheard of. Who has here. tended to be shown on Saturdays and Sundays, and those are the days when, in particular, the the things that keep the schedule regular are the news programs. You know, you've got you've got the six o'clock news, six to six thirty, the nine night. Well, it's not anymore, but it would have been in ninety two, nine to nine thirty, and so the you know the 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 half hour sitcoms and soaps and things fit nicely in between there to build up a block of programming that is an exact multiple of 30 minutes every time that's not true on the weekend because you don't have the same regular news programming and therefore things jump around and start at slightly more irregular times i am in many ways totally on a tangent here surprised that the that the language of the bbc hasn't developed with a ton of little shorts that fill in to push them back to regular starting times but maybe that's just me thinking no start on time because that's so regimented in our american minds about television it's like shows just don't start if it's not an hour or half hour it just doesn't happen um, and it's partially for competition reasons too i mean you do that you risk people not switching over to your show you know there's the argument that says well we'll we'll run over into their show and mess it up but there's also the argument that says you know we'll get there first and we'll you know catch them before they go to the other show but uh, I, eh, eh. here's here's the thing that um that I, uh, a point i was starting to make before i got to actually sidetracked by myself onto sarah green but it's interesting that you, you kind of mentioned these very different conventions between how things work in US television and how things work in British television, because this thing is obviously steep in, as you say, the language of television, and you recognise it's being letter perfect. But I wasn't sure what you would make of this show, because when you watch it, and it's no longer 1992. I mean, forget the fact that I was a 15-year-old stumbling across this, but anyone watching it in 1992 would have been watching it in a particular a particular context, a juncture when TV meant a certain thing, and the language of everything that they're aping in here is very much... I mean, particularly it's drawing on Hospital Watch because both um, Sarah Green and, and Mike Smith had, had, had appeared in that, and that was really at the vanguard of what I would recognise as reality TV. It's not it's not quite, you know, reality TV a few years later switched from the kind of fly-on-the-wall notion that we're seeing in this programme to basically all reality TV is a kind of game show. But it, it, it's in the very early days of that. And as you say, it is absolutely drawing on the language of that. And yet by the time... As I say, the BBC completely disowned this show. They completely ten-year ban. Yeah, they 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 said they would never show it again, and they never showed it again. And twenty-five years after the the original airing, where uh, you know the the uh, there'd been a documentary made about this, uh, ju- just about this show behind the curtain. I haven't been able to get hold of it because it's. It's no longer in print, but I would be fascinated to see it. Um, Adam Curtis has written a fascinating blog on it. You know, 25 years afterwards, the, there were several articles in the in the papers about this. New Statesman wrote an in-depth article, which is which is excellent. And 
the one show on BBC One, we're going to get Sarah Green to do a segment on the show. And the BBC next that, 25 years after this show was on. It was 10 years before you could get hold of it in any format whatsoever. So I didn't think I was ever going to see it again. And then it came out on DVD. And I showed it to some friends who are a similar age to me. And I thought, I mean, I I'd, I'd raved about it and said how good it was. But then I thought, are they going to get this? Because it's they're, they're not seeing it, even though they would be familiar with the same TV programmes that I'd seen back then. They're now looking at something that is a well over a decade out of date. And it's in 4.3 when everything's gone widescreen. And, you know, reality TV doesn't look like that anymore. I don't I don't think I don't think that's fair. I mean, if they're of similar age to you, then they have they have that muscle memory built up um, with time. I mean, people don't look at people are your age, my age, don't look at four three television and go, huh, that doesn't look like television. Like, no, <laughs> I, 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 I recognize it. I, I it's a thing that I've lived through. It's true. But it but Ghostwatch was a thing I lived through because I experienced it at the time. And so that 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 was a worry for me. But what I, what I wasn't wasn't quite prepared for was when I was sitting there looking at all of the things that had changed about the show and that seemed to me, oh, actually that's quite dated or whatever. And so what I wasn't quite prepared for was how much it absolutely scared the wits out of them as, <laughs> as a as a horror program and and. Um, so in a way, I thought, well, maybe it could have that effect on you, but you don't even have that same. You know, you'll have never watched Hospital Watch, I imagine, and nor Badger Watch, which is the one that fascinates me. <laughs> well, I that, heard a mention that, of that. That made it or Crime Watch. Although I have, I have watched Spring Watch. <laughs> Bad, Badger Watch would be a precursor to, to to Spring Watch, so very much the same kind of thing. That would be my not, guess, not, yes. not really the kind of reality TV that. That this is taking aim at. Um. So I'm gonna. I'm gonna say that I. I'm a frustrated filmmaker. I'm just gonna say that if people don't know that, that that's just always been a thing that's fascinated me since all the way back into the, into the early, heck, into the late seventies. Um, and I haven't got the talent for it. Um, it's just the thing I recognized. Um, I can do some of the technical work and I can put stuff together and, but you know, I, I can look at my own work and I can say, yeah, you know, you're never going to do that professionally. Um, but what I can do is I can really appreciate in particular people aping other people. I, I, I absolutely, that is something I absolutely positively adore. Uh, as far as I know, I'm one of the very few people that, knows or likes a show that was done in the United States called the Ben Stiller show before he got big. And a lot of it is no good, but a lot of it is him making mock trailers for films, interviews, uh, and he and, and or his team of writers can absolutely take genres that are even old that that are are gone and recreate them and when i watch it i i feel it it's like oh yeah 
I can never recreate that. I, I would I would adore to be able to make films like that. I would I would love to have. I have the idea the eye to detail enough to notice it after the fact. But if you sat me down and said do it, I couldn't. I cannot do it. So I really do appreciate it when I see it. And and I may not have seen a lot of 1990s reality television. I don't even <laughs> consider that reality television. That is not doesn't meet my definition of what reality reality television began with Big Brother. Different animal altogether. Right. That's a that's a news that's a news program. News well, the time is, was around before that. Um, it, it wasn't what we considered that that would have been a production of the news department and that's news and documentary department. And it, it, and yeah, it had a language to it. Ours was not quite the same, but I've seen enough British television that as I'm watching it, you can just absolutely see things that I've seen in other shows, bits here, bits there, the way the guys work in the telephone line, the way the presenter Mm. is dealing with the, with the person there coming back and forth, the banter between the on-screen person and, you know, people in the studio. I mean, it, mm. it just absolutely rings the bell as I'm watching yeah. it. It's just like, ding! Oh, they hit that note perfectly. It, it It's like listening to somebody sing a song perfectly, hitting the notes exactly on mark. And, and you know, like I said, with just a couple of spots in there that, that, that threw me off, which over 90 minutes is pretty pretty darn I, I, good i think it's and amazing. knowing it was a fake yeah i i i'm i'm yeah. curious because i don't think the, the ones that you've mentioned are so there's there's a there's a comment what leslie manning makes about how i mean she's very she says i was absolutely trying to match the the way in which these things are are shot and i i mean i just think i mean it is extraordinary because she she's She's using she's using the kind of fly on the wall camera setups or whatever, and she uses the shots that her camera crew are getting as they are being filmed and so forth. But she said, and so she said, so she she obviously studied meticulously all of this and and how and how it's done. And she probably says, also helps that the pros in the in the studios probably knew how it was done by also by muscle memory too. Well, except right. except that it's a drama studio. It's not. I'm not sure she's using a documentary crew, but I. I mean, I don't know enough about how the the BBC works. It's. I mean, it's certainly the case that a lot of people thought that the whole thing was actually recorded as live. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm like it was pretty about. good at that. To be it, fair, there were well, a couple places where it time seemed to skip too far when they switched between Parkinson and Sarah. It should be in one place, then they go back for a little bit, and then they go back to the house. And it did feel like it had been more time had elapsed in the house than had elapsed in the studio. But apart from that, but is it? I mean, it's about a six-week shoot or something. Yeah, and so, and so and, and and so they they went and did all the the location stuff first, and then they did the studio stuff afterwards. So it's the the, I mean, half the cast wouldn't have worked with the other half, I think, apart from the fact they, in those days, they still had some rehearsals, so they presumably rehearsed yeah. that together. But, um, I mean, that, to, to me, the level she achieves is extraordinary. And and, and the comment she makes is, make is, there are a couple of instances where, so what she was trying to do was to essentially cleave to the the reality of doing that 
And there were a couple of instances where she didn't. And I thought, mm. I have no idea where they are. There's one I'm, I'm wondering about, but basically I looked at it and I, I can't spot them. Hmm. I, I, like I said, I mean, the, the part at the beginning with the film, the video of the kids' room and the part at the end are really the two pieces that stand out to me as being we've broken we've broken the wall a little bit or we've rebuilt the wall for a bit but um everything else uh, really really pretty really pretty solid i was a little curious about when sarah walked into the bbc van and they cut between the cameraman following her and a camera inside the van but that could have just been prepared you know this scene we're going to walk into the van and show it off therefore have somebody in the van running the camera so i mean that's yeah, that's think, impossible yeah. but that one was a little bit a little off um I, I i'll throw out a couple things here i love not just the television aspect of it but there, there's a sequence in that bite back where they're saying they consult it and a psychologist goes well you didn't consult with a psychologist you'd have known we'd all be crazy uh but uh and then the guy commits. We're talking about we consulted within the BBC and we consulted psychical researchers, and it shows. I mean, it shows uh, the the touches. There there are such nice little touches, like you know, we had the army analyze these glasses, and they uh, they broke from not from force but from thermal changes. Which I don't know that I've ever heard that in a ghost case, but it makes sense because one of the few physical manifestations that ghosts supposedly have is temperature change yeah so that that's a nice that's a beautiful touch the the mention of the gansfield technique absolutely real it's the putting the ping pong balls over the eyes and playing the white noise to try to kind of isolate really there um maybe maybe one of the points of reality is when they took a pop at uri geller (laughs) with the bent spoons that was a bit over the top that that one, you know, broken glasses, but then here are the bent spoons, just like Yuri Geller. It's like, okay, that one, maybe that was one she was referring to. So I also like the fact that that she, the Dr. Pascal, uh, is like, well, you know, there's noises, there's water, then the physical phenomena. Poltergeists follow a menu, if you like. That is a, a really, that's a really good way of, of displaying spelling the fact that it's so cliche instead of calling it a cliche it's what we expect it's, it is it is how the phenomena goes and we uh, go it, it all it's was very very nicely done it was very nicely done in that uh aspect i i also like the skeptic making fun of him um attacking her credentials suggesting she should be selling crystals on venice beach i think i think the yuri geller thing may have come from one of the one of the inspirations for Volk, which which was um, a, a book by John Taylor that says his when when he was when he appeared on the Dimbleby talking, he it produced other effects that were even more incredible than he had achieved himself. For it turned out that in hundreds of homes throughout Great Britain, cutlery had been bent and timepieces long defunct restarted. And so it, you can see the idea of the national seance in that. Could be. Could be. It's a clever, it's a clever idea. And that's clever too. The, the fact that you're watching on TV 
you're hearing what you, you as you say, I was going to ask you about the number, but but that was cleared up for me before we actually got to the podcast about being the real crime watch number. Um, you know, were people calling in? So you're watching this thing and they're giving you fake callers and they're <laughs> telling part of the narrative through the people who are calling in. And, you know, oh, my my clock stopped at 930 when when this program started and you you could be forgiven sitting at home to look over at your clock and go well it didn't stop at mine but that's okay it's just happening in 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 places and i mean i almost i almost crapped my pants in terror when the the guy's his his uh, cheese and pickle sandwich plate flew off the arm of the chair <laughs> <laughs> it's like oh oh no like, not that don't mess with the food, man. Don't mess with the food. <laughs> Empty dishes are fine, but do not start mucking with the dishes. And that, I that, that that may that may be a turn of phrase you have there, but it is my it's one of my favourite complaints that was made about this show, at least according to Volk, is that um, someone wrote to uh, Ruth Baumgarten, the, the producer, demanding to be reimbursed for, by the BBC for the cost of a pair of trousers that her husband, who was a Falkland veteran, had shot himself in. <laughs> it was terrifying, man. It was terrifying. <laughs> and I also think that it was extremely, extremely good that Parkinson basically laughed that guy off. Yes. As as he's, he's calling and having a, a joke. And... You know something? In the context of what the writer had in mind, I don't know. Was that supposed to be a guy calling in as a as a joker? Or was that guy real in the context of this story? Actually his sandwich got flung off the arm of the chair. Uh, well, I I think I think he's supposed to be a joker, but I, I think it I think it highlights one of the again, it comes back to this point about using professional presenters in this because they have to react to those kinds of things all the time. You can you can give them the the stimulus that that is fictional, but they react to it in exactly the same way as they would react to a real situation. And it's it, I think it's also interesting, and it's partly to do with the way it's filmed as well. That they the what what which bits of it got scripted and which bits of it were were not um scripted word for word so how how people were reacting because that because they're they're um in a in a situation with camera in their face because some of it is is that you know they're given the gist of it and it i th- it, it varies how how people are performing depending on their skill set in this actually because i mean presumably sarah green learns her lines because she's she's a a roving reporter on the scene she's moving around a lot it would not be practical to do do anything very different i know for a fact that parkinson could not have learned his lines or at least that's what he said you know he's not an actor he said i would not i would simply not have been able to memorize all that he got it on auto cue which he would do because that's exactly what he would do if he was doing a real job and so right why not do it in the same way that makes sense. And and I suspect that if you're reading off an auto cue and you're interacting with people live, you just you know, there's a there's a there's a skill set to that that a, a practice like I say that that banter they have. Uh 
that yeah that it's, it's almost second nature because that's that's his day job right there, right there is uh, so there is an interesting thing about about uh, where these things intersect because i th- i don't think there, there is any question that as a ghost story and 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 as a as a piece of horror i mean horror is not normally my thing the friends i told you about who i showed it to um uh, yeah they well at least one of them likes horror stuff and this obviously works as a piece of horror and yet it is also steeped in the the language of reality tv and and it's quite an interesting comment that Ruth Baumgarten again makes about how you it 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 has to kind of adhere to to both, but you've got to be careful how you do it because if you just do the conventional horror thing, you break the rules of reality TV, and presumably vice versa. But I think the the point about it and the reason that I I would argue it is a mockumentary is that Falk's actually going for TV in this. It's a satire. And he is deliberately setting out to make people think about whether they should be trusting what they see. And I don't think he expects to get the reaction that he gets in terms of the 30,000 people phoning in and all the rest of it. But he wants some form of it. He wants, he wa- he wants people to question themselves in regards to this. And he was definitely, you know, when he... when. There's all this stuff on the bike back about how they, you know, they had the titles and the, but he was definitely when he pitched it, he said, you know, there should be no titles, there should be no credits, the the members of the cast should be going on to chat shows and things the week before, and basically portraying it all as if it's real, so that it's entirely billed as a real thing, and the and the 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 thing he was taking aim for was the was the kind of um, the blurring of the boundaries, which is exactly what he's doing, the blurring of the boundaries between the conventions of documentary and the conventions of drama. That, that, I mean, that's very interesting. Um, do, I mean, do you know that he was planning it as a satire? Because I see it. Yes. And, and what you just told me about him wanting people to come on in advance and promote the show and, and do the thing, it, to me, it feels like a piece of performance art more than a satire it, it, no, it feels he, like he's trying to build an event out of that and and well but i mean is, art art has I, art has meaning to it i mean but is it making a point about is it making a point about television or is it using yes. television and i i didn't see that as mockumentaries go i didn't see that as satire i saw it as it's not using it's not, that as a scaffolding for a, for a horror story. It would be so. easy. It would be easy to look look at the comments that he made afterwards and say this is this is kind of um, this is this is a retrospective um, view he's taken on it. When 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 uh, Adam Curtis, I would Adam Curtis. Uh, uh, no, well, no. I think I think you I think you can stand this up. Adam Curtis quotes him in a in an interview saying. Um, you know, dramas, dramas like NYPD Blue increasingly employed handheld camera style that came from documentary. And then you had Crime Watch and 999 that were full of reconstructions using actors, mixing and matching, matching real footage from real people. And what he's saying is we could no longer trust what we were seeing, what we were being shown or told by TV. 
the lines between the once distinct languages of factual and fictional TV were becoming dangerously blurred. Yet, paradoxically, television has also become the arbiter of reality. And the, the, the point that I think proves that he was intending this before the programme was made is that the, the, the following here is in the script. And he, and he talks about when Terry Waite was uh, released in November of 1991, so almost a year before the programme was made, but at the time at which it was it was being um, pitched and touted. And, and his brother, John Waite, was apparently told of, of um, Terry Waite's release. And he said, I won't believe it until I see it on TV. Hmm. So that's there in the script. That was going to be a caption at the beginning of the show. It wasn't actually used, but it indicates what he's thinking uh, when, you know, when he's, when he's planning this, what he's expecting the audience to take away from this. Maybe. I mean, I, my own, perhaps my own petty nature, but had I, had I put out something intending to you know had i put out a horror story that i intended to use in the framework of another genre of television uh and and not trying to portray it as a satire and and had there been a huge backlash an unexpected backlash i mean obviously they you can tell from bite back that they just had no idea the impact that it was how far that the impact was going to be i could absolutely see myself kind of doubling down in my brain and saying well <laughs> you didn't get the satire you dumb sucker uh and then and then sticking with that it's like uh no this was this was a high, higher brow than that this was because i considered high satire to be the highest form of art um but uh i i also read that he originally pitched this as a six part series yes that did not have this format but was more of following an investigative team throughout a a six week event and that that the was it the producer well it was it yeah said you know it's not going to support six parts well i know i think it i think it i think it was more that that the the bbc wouldn't go for this as a six well the bbc wanted a new a new edge of darkness basically in you know in the typical commissioner's kind of mentality of uh what what the only things that will be successful are things that emulate things that were successful previously so you never have something new and brilliant but that that was what they were looking for and that was what um Falk was originally developing a six-part series that featured a paranormal investigator and a journalist the final part of which would have been a a live TV show, and the, and the the suggestion that uh, Ruth Baumgarten made was just do the final episode, just just expand that into the into the whole thing, and so he took all the ideas from the original six parter and built them into this. Mm. You, you make an important point that I I don't want to I don't want to forget to bring up about this. Perhaps in conclusion, I don't know. This clearly had as. As you say, the BBC absolutely disowned it. And you know they didn't do anything like it afterwards. I mean, sometimes there is an event that happens in television that forever, in a way, changes it. And, you know, did this did this lead along that path where 
uh, David Attenborough gets up trouble for substituting some extra footage of polar bears in a in a show, and people claim it's fake because they were in a different hole in the snow than the ones that they were following earlier. You know, did, did, has that has that changed the landscape of television in Britain as time has gone to be risk averse or to be you know more cognizant of the role of television shaping people's reality because i know there's still a lot of absolute crap out there but there's nothing quite like this i i think that in common with a lot of satire this when you look at it now it looks incredibly far-sighted but it's also it's it's almost it's, it's almost impossible to imagine that things wouldn't have progressed in exactly the same way things have basically, naive is the word ev- you're looking at <laughs> ev- every, everything everything that he has taken aim at that he criticized in that in that quote from the 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 adam curtis piece has just got worse it has just got worse and it, and interestingly enough i mean he was the, the question was, you know, could you do something like this again? And and he says, no, you can't. You know, it's not it's not the kind of thing you could do. Now, I'm not I'm not sure if that's true. But one of the things he mentioned when you say, was there ever anything like this? One of the things he mentioned was the day to day, which I thought was an interesting um, comparison. It's around the same time, but it's it's interesting in that it's taking the language of, in that case, news television and it's using it to a slightly different purpose in the sense I mean, it's still satirizing it but it's 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 heightening it to make you laugh at how absurd it is rather than using the kind of horror aspect to to, to get you hooked into believing something and i th- i think i think when you look at the day-to-day what you when you when I watched that originally what I expected to happen you go ha ha look at those graphics they're so daft the producers on Newsnight must be so embarrassed because they've just run something that actually, you know, okay, it's, they think it's a bit classy, but really, you could you could easily see how it's extrapolated into this absolute utter nonsense. What actually mm. happened was a bunch of people in news looked at the day to day, and they apparently took it as an absolute model of what they should do. In much the same way that years and years later. The politicians and the and the and the spads who were satirized in the thick of it, for some reason, absolutely loved that show and somehow thought it was complimenting them and thought it was brilliant that this show was being made about them and became competitive about who was most like the characters in in the thick of it. So, I think it is sometimes possible to overstate the power of satire to change things, even if you know just the the. I mean, foresight alone is a powerful, a powerful tool. But I don't, I don't, I think I'd hmm. be deluding myself if I said it changed things. Hmm. Well, we don't get the, we don't get programs like Ghostwatch that are made up whole cloth. Now they're half made up whole cloth. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, you know, that you, you mentioned something there that makes me come back to that point about whether it's not a satire or not. And I, and I'll go, I'll go off and consult a dictionary after the fact. It has never occurred to me, not once in my entire life, that satire can be something other than funny. Really? 
Yeah, it can be it can be poignant. It can be pointed. It can be uh, any number of things. But it's always funny. <laughs> it's always funny to me. This did not do that. And maybe that's what maybe that's where I see that that line. I've always viewed satire as a form of comedy exclusively. It's like you wouldn't say it was a slapstick horror film. Just wouldn't. <laughs> you just wouldn't. But but I don't um, think satire is slapstick. I think no 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 no. I'm just using that as two two things that just don't that you know there there are connotations to slapstick that is it's comedy. It's not it's not not com- you hear slapstick you know it's comedy. When I hear satire I think comedy. I just I just do. Lots of satire um, is comedy, and I and I don't I don't think that Ghostwatch isn't funny because I still think that ending is an absolute hoot. But I think I think most of it is satire in the sense of it's a it's a it's a form of extrapolating from seeing seeing something in the real world and extending it to an absurd extent in order to highlight how ridiculous it is, essentially. And I think Ghostwatch does that. I'd step one other thing. Totally non sequitur. You you mentioned the uh, production, the look of the production stuff. The light pencil. <laughs> I gave a little. I gave, I gave a little squeal when the light pencil came out. <laughs> It's like, oh, how perfect. I mean, and, and that was it. It's like, oh, how perfect. <laughs> Not only do they have one, which is very 90s. 23 but, years or so before the Apple Pencil was released. But, well, in television, there was a lot of that sending football games and things using that stuff. That was about the time that this this kind of came along. But there's, there's, not only is there that bit of perfect fitting with the times but there's also parkinson's sort of there's this newfangled gadgety thing here that you can just sort of play with there is that that brilliant that brilliant contempt (laughs) (laughs) in in that performance at that moment about that that kind of newfangledy gadgety thing that'll never catch on but it, but it, but it all, I mean, again, this comes back to the question of it being the language of television of the time. Part of, part again, part of what made it real because this is what the equivalent shows. You know, if this was a real show, what its competitors would have been doing would be trying to differentiate themselves by using things that were as cutting edge as possible. And it absolutely mm-hmm. blew my mind when I heard Leslie Manning say that the the page turning effect that you see you know used in the on the video screens right from the beginning of it was the very latest thing in 1992 we gotta show everything that's that's new and it new looks, and fancy i mean it yeah. looks so good oh, it's amazing to think that once upon a time that was a novelty wow and now just an annoyance <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh. All right. Well, I think we've we've talked for about an hour and a half, uh, at least for recording time. So I think that's probably long enough for Ghostwatch. It, it'll be it'll be wrapping up. No one will be listening to this live. They'll all be watching Ghostwatch, but it'll be <laughs> wrapping up about the time we're wrapping up. And uh, I am I will be there. I will be there on Twitter this year, Halloween at a ridiculous. I think that will be about one. 25 in the afternoon in arizona but uh, <laughs> i will be there spooky. hashtag uh trying to spread the the national seance internationally that's uh <laughs> and i'm hoping all the listeners of fusion patrol will be here 
in 2021 doing the same. <laughs> Did you have anything else, Simon, on it before I, I just sign I her thought, off? I thought I would I would finish. Just uh, there's another nice little quote from Volk because it indicates how however many however many additional warnings and um, they however much they had tried to tell people that this was actually fictional he'd told one of his friends to look out for this program because he'd written it and she phoned to say that she had totally believed it and he said i told you i wrote it and she said well i know but as soon as i saw michael parkinson i thought you must have got it wrong (laughs) yeah 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 we have a problem with television we have a problem with television we do destroying the world as suzanne <laughs> as suzanne says when I mean, she reality conducts a little hope, show hope, stars I just, are present i just i just gave you what you wanted yep yep and maybe that's maybe that's the line that's supposed to be tipping the audience off well just faking I, this for you it, it's a I play mean, within to, a play in which we catch the conscience of the king no well, it's it's <laughs> it's certainly the most on your nose i mean it, it if this is satire, and I'm convinced it is, that is the most on-your-nose line in the whole thing. <laughs> Simon, thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure, as always. Listeners, I hope you'll join us all again next time on Fusion Patrol. You've been listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. Find out how you can be a sponsor and get early access to all episodes and more at patreon.com slash fusionpatrol. Come join the conversation on Facebook or Twitter. All episodes are available at FusionPatrol.com. Our music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf. This has been a Lone Locust production. <laughs>